Our first speaker is Professor Simon Schretter from uh, the Faculty of History here in Cambridge. Uh, he's worked for many years on issues around history and public policy, and he was one of two founders back in 2002 here in Cambridge uh, of the History and, and Public Policy Group. Uh, and I won't waste any more time. Uh, Simon, uh, please come up to the podium. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, Robert, Natasha and Tim, for the introductions. Um, I won't detain us uh, any longer. Um, so uh, I'm talking today to this general theme. Um, I'm going to tell you something about what history has to offer, uh, a little bit about history and policy, and then one or two illustrative examples of what history as one of the humanities can give to our perspectives in public policy. So what history has to offer government and um, public policy is that it is our disciplined collective memory, uh, and the discipline of history is about um, the rules of evidence and about thinking carefully about our collective memory. How important is our collective memory? Well, you know, try thinking of yourself without your memory. Um, you, you don't get very far, you don't get up in the morning without it. Um, this is our collective version of it, so I would suggest, suggest it's actually extremely important. Uh, the key question, though, is what kind of historical memory are we drawing on in our policy making? Um, politicians, speechwriters, and so on are continually reaching for analogies and examples that suit their particular purpose. But I would suggest that using history and drawing on it at random without consulting professional historians is about as misleading as doing economic policy without really consulting economists. Nobody would think of it. Um, it's uh, a ridiculous proposition, but it goes on all the time uh, in our public life. Yes, I know economists have not got the highest cachet at the moment, um, but I think you get my general point. Um, the historicist approach and methodology, what, what, you know, what's distinctive about it, it's about a particular approach to causation. Historians are particularly sensitive to issues of context in the past, the kind of multiple levels of um, causation that we need to understand. They're interested particularly in sequence. They're very, very attentive to the fact that uh, the way, the exact order in which things happens is really quite formative and determinative over subsequent possibilities um, and that that's something that needs to be very carefully evaluated and put into this kind of thick context. And they're very sensitive about difference. They know that the past is another country, that we can't simply assume uh, that things that work in one period or place uh, can simply be translated. We need to be thinking very carefully about this. So, what historians can offer policy, a very typical thing is that most science disciplines, social science disciplines, come to a problem and say, what is the problem? I've got my theory, I'm going to solve it for you. The first question a historian wants to ask is, what's the story here? How did we get to where we are? Let's spend some time thinking about that. It's a different kind of approach. I think history has the capacity to surprise. It often dispels popular myths when we actually find out that what we thought history was is not quite as it was at all. It guards against what historians call teleology, linear progress stories, that basically the present is an inevitable consequence of some sequence of developments that happens often to suit us or to suit those uh, with, with most, most power and wealth at the moment. It focuses on power. Uh, it focuses on temporal framing, on how we are thinking about a problem, often a historical 
an important historical contribution can be to show that we actually really need to think of something in terms of the last two or three centuries, not in terms of the last two or three decades, let alone two or three years, to understand the forces that are going on here and why things are as they are and why they may be so difficult to change uh, and, 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 and you know, we, we, we may be unconscious of this. This is all a bit in the abstract at the moment, but I'm going to come on to give you a, quite a, 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 a strong example in a minute. Um, the uh, questions of evidence, historians are very good with, you know, people say statistics are very uh, difficult things to, to use and trustworthy. Well, one thing that historians will always want to address very carefully is what are the categories in statistics, not necessarily the numbers and so on, but why, why is the statistics being put into these particular categories? Where do they come from? Um, why, 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 why are they framed? Why are they composed in the way they are? And you usually need historical research to understand why we talk about the primary, secondary, tertiary sector of the economy, for instance. Where did that come from? Um, why, why, is it, why is it believed to be a compelling way of classifying national accounts and so on? Um, we question uh, the time frame for policy. Often the historical uh, perspective would suggest that policies simply cannot be evaluated in, in five-year electoral cycles. They really need to, to be thought of longer. And we like to learn from the past. Instead of junking and throwing away policy mistakes, historians would say actually there's a lot to be learned from policy mistakes and also a lot to be learned from successes in the past. Um, historians are a little bit like journalists drawn to um, talk about um, problems and disasters and injustices, but also the historical record has some things that have actually worked rather well, and they, they can be very helpful to um, bring back into our understanding. And we provide a dialogue with the past. We Historians don't just invoke Adam Smith or Thomas Malthus. They actually want to explore in detail what those thinkers said, um, not simply use them as some kind of symbol, some totem. Um, and often these great thinkers in the past are much, much more interesting than we might think and can give us an awful lot more to think about. So history and policy was formed long before impact was ever a, a term back in 2002 here in Cambridge. It's a partnership now supported from both Cambridge, uh, Graham Copacoga, who's taken the photographs here as our digital communications officer in Cambridge, responsible for our wonderful website, uh, Fiona Holland at the back um, is our uh, public relations manager at KCL who helps us put on uh, all the events that we can. We, we can. Um, at the moment there are 160 online policy papers. One for instance is by Paul Cartledge who's going to be speaking to you later. Very pleased that we got uh, an ancient historian to, to contribute a policy paper, a very good one, on democracy and ostracism. Um, and we have medieval historians, we ha have a, a modern historian. So historians of all period can contribute. The crucial thing is, does their historical knowledge offer some kind of constructive, by which I don't mean optimistic, some kind of tractable policy uh, uh, conclusion from their historical <coughs> research? <coughs> History and policy succeeded in bringing historians into government. We give evidence to select committees. Uh, to the Prime Minister's Office, the Cabinet Office. We have a Treasury Seminar Series, which I know Duncan Needham, who is here in the audience, has given a very interesting um, uh, uh, exercise to them, working through the Maplin Airport um, mess of 30 years ago for the civil servants to think about what's going on with the London Airport today, and we have very positive response from that. Uh, DFID, Education Department, so we are now getting, our profile is sufficient that we are getting demand from government departments and civil servants that they want to hear from historians in seminars and workshops. 
Uh, Graham has organised us so we now have plenty of Twitter and Facebook. We're on the number 10 website, which was important for our profile. We were invited by 10 Downing Street two or three years ago to help out and provide um, history content on their website. And we have international emulation now. There is now an Australian policy and history. Um, so, a recent example of the kind of things we do would be, for instance, the inquiry into Savile. Kate Lampard um, had the foresight and good sense to say this is such a bizarre thing that's been going on here, we can rush to judgment and, and so on, but actually, if I'm going to do a proper inquiry, I want to know what was the context in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so she turned to history and policy, and our colleague here in Cambridge, Lucy Delap, was able to organise a set of historians who gave um, evidence to Lampard, and she was, and her commissioners were very, as you can see from this quote, which I'm not going to read out, were very, um, uh, found that very helpful and important in trying to understand the context and the difference uh, of, that, of that, this quite recent past. One of the you know, big problems is the recent past, 30 years ago, when we can make the assumption we know what it is, historians will actually say, well, actually, <laughs> it's rather subtly different from what you, what you may think. So this is an example of the kind of thing that history and policy can do for government and policy. And now, in the remainder of the talk, I'm going to give you a rather longer, extensive example of what history and policy can do. I'm going to talk about the welfare state, the, what was called the English Poor Law, about its, its history and how it offers us... A, it ticks a lot of that list of ten, ten things that I put up at the start about what history can offer. It, understanding the history of the Poor Law... Uh, and, and its relationship to the welfare state can really rather, I think, reframe how we're thinking about current debates about our social system, security system, about the welfare system, about its place in our society and our history, and about the sense or nonsense of um, uh, cuts and restrictions to it um, as really perhaps not as, as, as sensible as they might seem at, at first. So, first of all, you know, what's the state of our, our memory, your prior expectations about this historical institution, the poor law, um, and England's social security system? Uh, and we'll, we'll explore whether some recent professional historical research can perhaps provide you with some surprises. I think economists' prior implicit historical knowledge, the sort of thing that's informing government policy at the moment, would be that welfare states in general are a bit of a burden on the productive economy. They create moral hazard of welfare dependency. They raise the price of labour. They may act as disincentives to charity and philanthropy, the big society notion that big government gets in the way of um, volunteering. It is acknowledged that they have virtues. They provide a safety net. Um, they perhaps can contribute to, to human capital. But probably the overall evaluation is they're not really optimal for growth promotion if we want to focus on um, the, the, the prosperity of our economy, we, we, we wouldn't look to uh, the welfare state as the place in which we would, we would be thinking about that. Um, they're probably very inadvisable in low per capita income countries where more informal social security mechanisms are appropriate, family and kinship. So there's a sort of range of assumptions about um, them be, welfare being a kind of luxury that rich countries kind of might, 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 might be useful for them, but it's, it's never really going to be very useful for uh, economic productivity. We also have some other kind of baggage in our collective memory, the, the hated and detested institution of famine Ireland, where the new poor law in Ireland of 1838 failed the Irish spectacularly, and of course the English workhouses, um, re, you know, Reed Dickens if you want to 
know how bad the poor law and its work, its grad grinding workhouses were. This is all in our, it's all in our collective undisciplined memory there that's circulating around in our understanding of what the, the poor law and what a previous social security system was. And we might think that civic society and institutions like trade unions, uh, philanthropy, self-help, insurance are kind of proud civic society alternatives that but basically these are kind of better really uh, and that, that, that um, a poor law and a welfare state is a, is a kind of safety net that, that uh, is a sort of second best thing. So what I'm going to do in the next five or ten minutes is just go through historians' new knowledge of the old poor law that to point out to you that this is a universal social security system which was in existence in Britain for four centuries before today. Um, it's a un it was a universalist welfare system, and then there's a question, did it, over those many centuries, did it crowd out philanthropy and society? We'll look at that. So, two or three historians whose work I'm sort of drawing off here, um, Peter Solar, Steve Hindle, and Laurie Charlesworth, and, and, and others, have, have basically established for us that Probably the English poor law was a, was a unique institution in, in Western Europe in the early modern period. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, there probably wasn't anything else quite like this, in the sense that, although there were poor laws all over Europe, they tended to apply to the city and urban populations. The English poor law was established in principle to exist in every parish in the country, and that made it really rather unusual. We call it the Elizabethan or Old Poor Law, um, set up by two statutes of 1598 and 1601. But these statutes, which are famous and are in the, in the history books, it are the, were the culmination of six decades of experimentation since the Reformation of the British state trying to get this right, trying to work out how to replace um, the church with... Um, and the monasteries with a system that delivered support and relief to the population and avoided disorder and disruption in times of, of hardship. Crucially, it was a universal legal right to relief for every subject. We think of human rights as something that was created after the Second World War with declarations, grand declarations. This was a system of practical governance which enshrined a really important universal right for every subject of the Crown to relief, a right to relief. You, you will not starve in, in the English realm. Um, every one of England's 10,000 parishes were mandated by central government to create a parish fund. The fund was financed by a progressive local tax on the pro rata to the property value of um, occupiers in the local parish. Um, clever stuff, you can't land can't move, and you pay tax according to the value of that land. It's quite difficult to get, get round this. To support, it's there to support the local poor all the year round. It's not the poor law is not simply an emergency thing about dearth and, and high prices in famine. It's there for orphans, for widows, the old, the disabled, and indeed the unemployed. They're all covered all the year round by this legislation. It's an extraordinary system that uh, it, the English Crown created, and we should be extremely proud of it, and we should be reflecting on it. It's universalist, but it's devolved. So the strengths are that there's devolved administration, there's very high quality information on the local claimants. The parish in England on average had 500 inhabitants in it. So it's not, not, not easy for people to sort of shirk and pretend that they're, 
I've got a bad leg. Well, your neighbour saw you out the other day. Um, you're telling me you've got a bad leg? I don't think so. Um, potential weaknesses, of course, are of, that it could be amenable to local corruption, petty officials seeking favours from claimants, perhaps sexual favours from female claimants and so on, all that kind of stuff that goes on all over the world. The possibility of free riding of, of a parish trying to kind of cut its own expenditure, saying, well, if there's poor people around here, they'll go to the next parish. We'll, we'll kind of, we won't worry about this. Or the converse of unlimited liability. Parishes worrying that, God, you know, if we establish this fund, all the poor are going to come into us and see certain kind of reverberating issues here because what you've actually got is 10,000 little mini welfare states all, all next to each other. And that's very interesting. Solutions to the potential problems. The whole thing is put in t under the monitoring hands of the Justice of the Peace, the magistrates who are available, accessible to the poor to appeal to if they feel they've been hard done by and also must monitor the accounts and the operations of the overseers of the poor. The Justice of the Peace holds his holds his position by, by the pleasure of the crown, not, he's not necessarily in the hands of the local elites. The Privy Council, uh, through its book of orders and various other devices, bears down on parishes that are seen to be trying to avoid their obligations and makes it its business to try to ensure that uh, these parish funds are indeed set up and created. And the settlement laws, which eventually are, after several decades of um, experimentation, are created in order to define the rules of who, who has this right, this absolute right of relief, gets fixed onto one parish. And your settlement becomes very important to you uh, in law. You have an absolute right. If you're in the wrong place in the wrong time, the parish has the duty, to, at its own cost, to move you back to the parish where you have relief or to provide relief for you on the spot. What it can't do is simply take you to the boundaries, kick you off and say you're not our problem anymore. That's not permitted. So, and that, the litigation between parishes about who's responsible for different individuals has actually provided historians with lots of the evidence which enables us to be really confident that this system really existed out there all over the land. It wasn't just a piece of paper uh, signed by Elizabeth in, in Westminster. So it's four interlocking institutions of local governments. It exists for two centuries or more. It's mandated by the central government. It's providing effective, accessible welfare at the level of the parish. Poor laws, justices, providing impartial, accessible local justice, the settlement laws, and parish registers. Parish registers created by uh, Henry VIII provide very helpful... Um, they were actually created to provide record of inheritance title, as you can see from the quote there. Um, they're actually very helpful also for the poor because they provide um, a, a, a record of where your settlement is by birth or if you're a woman and you get married then it's important that you know you, you're able to prove that because your settlement moves to the parish of marriage. The levels of outlay are significant it, for early modern societies 1% rising to 2% of national income is going on these transfer payments, this relief that is paid to people in pensions and in payments when the price of, of grain goes up. So this, for, for, there's nothing else on this scale going on in Western Europe. It's a big operation. A lot of money is being moved around from it. We have very compelling evidence of its bottom line effectiveness. All those parish registers have survived, many of them, enough of them for the Cambridge group to evaluate the relationship between price rises and mortality in the population. And what this demonstrates is uniquely in England, in Western Europe, 
After the 1620s, there is no more regional or national scale famine crisis. The relationship between price and mortality ceases to hold in England under its poor law regime. That's not true in most of the rest of Western Europe. Um, as I'm running out of time, I'm not going to go into this. This is just to point out to you the percentage of the population urban in England rises dramatically between 1600 and, and 1800, reaching the, the, the European leader, Holland. The percentage urban is, of course, probably about the best index we have of the economic productivity and growth in a national economy if we lack sort of national accounts type figures. And this is demonstrating that the poor law and its increase and its importance goes hand in hand with, with dramatically rising productivity in the economy. Um, and uh, that would be because there are various reasons to believe that this system produces productivity-raising innovations. It promotes labour mobility, which Adam Smith thought it didn't, but he was wrong. And uh, it also has the capacity, he was wrong on that point, he's a very clever man, right on many things, but not on that. Uh, and the fact, that it, he, the fact he's wrong is demonstrated by that. You can't have urban growth on that scale without masses of mobility and migration in an economy. Um, so the poor law did not impede mobility, it actually promoted it. One of the reasons being that young people could leave their elders in the hands of the parish and go off and seek their fortune because they knew that the, the elderly were not going to starve and be not looked after when they weren't around. Did the poor law crowd, crowd out civil society and philanthropy? Well, interestingly, Elizabeth I passes in the same year of the founding cha charity statute, the Charitable Uses Act of 1601, which, when we look at it, is intriguing. It actually says that charitable activity is legitimate when used for all the same things that the poor law does. Charitable activities are to, to assist the poor, our orphans, widows, educate the, uh, the, the, the young, and so on. What, this, what Elizabeth I is doing is she's actually creating a system in which the wealthy and the wealthier in every parish are mandated to support the poor by the poor law. They've got to do this through their poor rates. However, she's also saying, if you want to, you can create charities, you can endow things in order to support the poor, which will, of course, mean that your family gets a good name, gets all the kudos from doing this. If you go to any church in England, you'll see plaques to all these sorts of things. Um, and if you get it right, if you, if you, if you found things and, 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 and create institutions like almshouses or schools for the poor that are effective, you're actually, by the way, you're going to reduce your liability in the, to the poor law over time. It's a very clever set of incentives that, that are being set up there. So there's all sorts of activity that's civic and philanthropic that accompanies this, this poor law and the rise in its uh, expense. And... Um, uh, so, to conclude, uh, England and Wales have had a statutory universal welfare system for over 400 years. This is not the creation of Beveridge in 1945 and the Labour government. It's a very, very long-standing uh, institution. It's accompanied our success story as a market economy in Britain and it's facilitated it. Um, it's a foundational institution. Um, it's always absorbed a lot of resources by the standards of the time. And that's not surprising, considering you know, what it's doing. Um, it has necessarily to be paid for disproportionately by the wealthier section of society, by definition, if, if you're going to have transfers that support the poorer. Um, for most of its long history, with the exception of the, the, the workhouse Victorian poor lord, lampooned by Dickens, for most of its long history, it has protected the poor effectively and measurably enhanced the wealth 
health, health, welfare and human capital of the population. And there is no evidence that I'm aware of of this kind of system crowding out civic activism. If anything, it actually assists it and crowded it in, crowds it in, provided the overall legislative framework of incentives for the wealthy is set up in the right way. So, um, I'll, I'll end there, you, just to review all those things that I said history can do for public policy, and if you think about what you've learned about the long-term history of the welfare system in Europe, in, in Britain, I would hope that um, a lot of those boxes have been ticked for you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Simon. Um, I'm anxious to keep to some semblance of timekeeping, but let's have just one question for Simon uh, right up at the back there. Yes, gentleman at the back. Yeah. In the nick of time, John Tasel, I'm a uh, CSAP policy fellow. I thought that was intriguing and opened my eyes in a number of ways. Um, I'm curious, um, what can history tell us about how big should the state be? We know a lot about how big a company should be from Ronald Coase and his work 60-odd years ago. Um, we know that uh, a company should grow to a particular size and then either uh, be bought or broken up. Um, so we understand that pretty well. But what do we understand that we can base evidence-based policy on about how big the state should be? Mm. Okay, well, I would, what I would say on that is that virtually all liberal democracies today are in the range of 35 to 55% of uh, they take, you know, their uh, public wealth GDP um, being taken in, in uh, taxation. And, that, and that's probably reflects the fact that if you want to live in a society where everybody, not just the wealthy, but absolutely, actually everybody has got a fairly equal chance of living a, ver a very long and healthy life until their 70s, perhaps even now we're beginning to think of into their 80s, that's expensive. But, you know, do you want to live in that society? I mean, the idea that you can live in a society that is delivering this kind of you know, we, we take an awful lot for granted. What the historical perspective will certainly do for you is to realise that, you know, a, a, for an entire population, 60 million people, to be able to be living healthy lives into their 60s, 70s, 80s is an extraordinary achievement. And it's going to take a lot of resources to, to do that. And the idea that somehow or other we can trim and cut the, 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 the you know, the, the, the amount of resources going to do that is, is fine in the abstract, but you, you know the result is going to be that your life expectancies on average are going to start to dip down, and when you start to pour into it, you're going to discover there's sections of the population that have really quite poor um, uh, life expectancies. So the, the question is, you know, what kind of society do you want to live in? And if you want to live in a liberal democracy where people have all, where all the people have this kind of these kind of resources available. It's going to be expensive. There's still a very, very large chunk left over for you know, market activity, if you like, but uh, there's no way of making this cheap. The Americans try a different kind of system, and it, it turns out to actually be extremely, exp even more expensive than ours, and, and not to cater for the bottom 25 to 30% of the population's health. Um, so it's, it's quite hard to see how you can 
how you can do this without devoting quite a lot of resources to these important, equal, equally available public <laughs> services. And people will, you know, nobody likes paying taxes, but if you understand that this is what it's, what it's doing for you, which is what a historical perspective can show you, that you're not going to get this kind of extraordinary... Li- you know, we, we really overlook the obvious, that we have the most extraordinary life opportunities and, and health today. Uh, and that's, you know, that costs... It's, it's not just, you know, you don't just get it by eating shreddies every day. Um, you know, this, is, this is an expensive business. Uh, and I think there's a complete unreality in the public discourse about, about that. Um, you know, there's a certain level of state expenditure which, you know, to maintain citizenry in a healthy state has to be spent. And it can't be done except on a basis of, of universal provision. And that means, really, public provision. Okay, thank you very much, Simon. Um...